0: And most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro, in reverence to, and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation.
1: God, Pete's book arrived in that second week, because we didn't lose a lot of time. We probably lost the first seven days of not understanding, but as soon as we got his book, I can I can actually show you, but you know it won't show on the podcast, but for me, everything was written in, scribbled in, I don't know whether you can see that, but it became my actual Bible, and that's the wrong word to use, came my blueprint for recovery.
0: In this compelling interview, I speak with Bridget, a care partner to John, a stroke survivor. Bridget reached out to me when she learned about Pete's passing. They were shocked and deeply saddened that this great person who still had a lot to give is no longer with us. Bridget states, thank God for Peter and his talent at clarifying the mysterious and unknowns of stroke survival and recovery. We will be forever grateful. We are the direct result of his teachings and guidance. We have overcome so much due to his promptings and direction. We stuck with it no matter what, and we demanded of ourselves to follow through on his wisdom and get the necessary therapies. Follow the words, come up with the team, and keep going. In this conversation, we gain valuable insight from the care partner's perspective on what it's like to go through this experience with a loved one. Enjoy. Real quick, I just want to remind you, if you haven't joined the podcast membership, you can still do so at the Founder Circle price of $5 a month. This offer expires on the 15th Of this month, October 2022. There we go. Now we're recording. Thank you, Bridget, so much for reaching out to me, sharing your thoughts about Pete, telling your story, a little bit of your story to me, and for agreeing to come onto the podcast.
1: It's a total pleasure from my point of view. He was so instrumental. In our recovery.
0: I think he was in uh, the recovery for many, many people. I know he was instrumental in my practice as an occupational therapist. And so I wonder if we should start with maybe an outline of who you are. Just maybe explain to us a little bit about who you are and how you came upon Pete's book and why you needed Pete's book.
1: Yes, okay. Well, um, John and I are in our sort of 70s and 80s. John's 80, I'm 74, a couple of days ago.
0: Well, happy
1: birthday. Thank you, thank you. And um, last February, um, John had a wake-up stroke. He fell out of bed at 3.15am and um, I just let him relax on the floor for a few moments and then got him up onto the bed and realized that that when he started to speak with me, it was all jumbled. And so I rang who we have, triple O, which is our number in Australia. And the ambulance was there within 10, 15 minutes. We were very lucky. So um, he was in the hospital by 4am. They did scan straight away, obviously uh, felt that there might be the opportunity to do a clot retrieval because they could see that might be possible. And so they bundled him up and got him over to another hospital who deals with that. And that was probably about 20 minutes away, I suppose. And by 7 a.m., he was in surgery, having the angiogram and the clot retrieval attempt. When they tried to do that, they realized it was plaque rupture. The clot was behind the plaque and obviously um, it was too dangerous to do any procedure. So, it wasn't possible to do the clot retrieval, and therefore, they had to allow the clot to, I mean, the the stroke to complete, they call it. So, um, that's what happened. He stayed in that hospital then, and then came back to the original hospital where they had a very active rehab, medical rehab unit. And um, that's where he was transferred to late in that afternoon. So, that day, He'd had an early stroke, he'd had surgery, he had transfers, two transfers, and then came back to the hospital on a Thursday night with hardly any staffing. There was a young registrar who had no idea about aphasia, which is obviously what John ended up having um, as a condition of the stroke. And so no communication and from John's part, and this doctor didn't understand that. Um, which was very sad because he behaved with a very brusque, unsympathetic manner. And John had no idea where he was, what was happening, who he was. And it was incredibly bewildering. And as someone looking on and trying to attempt to help, it, it became very obvious that my presence there was actually aggravating the situation because he thought he was going home and not into hospital again. So I had to leave, very distressed, and I went straight home. Got on the internet, <laughs> uh, looked up books because I am a bookaholic. I come from a medical research family, so I thought, "Oh my God, I've got to do something here." And I got onto um, the UK Depository. Sorry, mentioning names, but they are brilliant. Free, free freight to Australia. So, and I ordered fifteen books. One of them was. Pete's, which was um, stronger after stroke, which was absolutely the words that we wanted to embrace going forward. I had never heard of anyone being stronger after stroke. So it really resonated with the thought and the motivation of what we wanted to achieve if we possibly could. I have done years worth of being open to neuroplasticity and how magical the body is So it all resonated very well with me when I read Pete's, well, the introduction to the book, basically, on the website. So that's what happened. I was so distressed, I was going to actually move him from that hospital back to the one that did the surgery, because they seemed to be so uh, empathetic towards stroke survivors. But in fact, when I went back in the morning, there was this big smile from John. Nurses had been around he felt a little bit more comfortable. Certainly in his own mind, he accepted his condition from day one, which was a very big plus for him and his recovery. And we then constantly worked to reassure him as to what was happening. Uh, Obviously, the aphasia aspect was incredibly serious because he couldn't communicate. And um, we worked around ways and means of making picture cards, simple picture cards for all the daily things that he would need to do. And um, he then became a bit more aware of being able to find them in his, I gave him a big pencil case with a big zipper with a ribbon attached so that he could actually grasp that and be able to open it because his motor skills were not good enough to grasp at that particular point in time and he then started to understand each one of the cards and what they might mean and then we started to progress from there
0: that is quite a story what a what a um a very busy first 24 hours for someone who was in the midst of a stroke evolving i know I just cannot imagine.
1: No. And the other thing that that happened was he absolutely lost all alphabet, all numbers, all all knowledge. He didn't know what a toilet even was for, didn't understand, you know, all those uh, poo and wee or they call it, um, did you move your bowels today? That's what the medical fraternity say. The language is just ridiculous because no one says that to anybody. You know, they use totally different language about ordinary everyday events. And especially with someone with a who was grappling with even trying to understand one or two words, let alone unusual words and completely out of context, because they had no idea what it even meant. So when John said, he, he only had the word yes uh, to begin with for the first probably two or three days. And so he said yes to everything. So doctors and nurses thought that he understood what they were saying. And the whole process of that became incredibly dangerous for him because he didn't understand that yes meant that they thought he understood. And uh, it it took a little while for me to register that and for me to actually realize that he had no knowledge of anything. And I I find 80 years worth of, you know, knowledge just completely vanished, wasn't contactable in his brain. And for the first few days, at least probably the first week, he really had no idea where he was. So my my arriving, you know, for him to see something familiar was uh, very, very uh, comforting for him. And because he couldn't communicate, we luckily had an angelic older gentleman opposite him in the ward. And he saw what was happening with John's lack of communication when I wasn't there. And he was able to assist and certainly alert me to John's um, very basic needs of not being able to be understood and not being able to communicate. And that's how we ultimately developed the cards, because it was just so daunting for him to to live in the hospital without that kind of care. And everyone is so busy in hospital trying to keep people, you know, moving along in a progressive way and staying alive, that they really don't have a lot of time to develop or to even contemplate the emotional side or the family member's difficulty or all those things that happen in an incredibly bewildering environment for, for both parties.
0: Exactly. It's, it's a full family experience. Yeah. So the hospital that he went to first and was transferred back to, is that more of a generalized hospital where they don't understand stroke, or they just don't treat it as emergently and detailed as the second hospital that he went to?
1: I think it's a case of um, I have to be careful here because the actual rehab um, was excellent. He had sort of six hours, three hours of PTOT physical therapy. One hour morning, one hour afternoon, every day of each of those three modalities. Uh, And so he got a lot of therapy, which was wonderful because, you know, that's what Pete talks about all the time is get the therapy, get the therapy, get that penumbra working. You, You know, you've got probably 12 weeks, three months or something of really active time for the penumbra to come back on track. And that was the one thing that he really gave me that Thought. And I pushed and pushed and pushed for, you know, the continuing therapy, knowing what he was telling me in the book. But the hospital that he did go to was a very good rehab unit. It just didn't necessarily cater for, um, how would you say, it, for letting the knowledge of the um, medical condition wrap into a life somehow. And it was just really keeping this body surviving rather than understanding the spirit, the soul, the holistic process of the family also being incredibly, um, incredibly traumatized by the whole thing as well and having to stay stable for showing confidence for their loved one, first of all, and not showing worry and concern and you know, because that that just compounds anxiety. And it was a case of as we move forward with John, we realised that anxiety then obviously created spasticity. And that was, we had to be quite careful that we didn't take him down that route. As time went on, we got to learn that anxiety was an issue for him because the spasticity came back in seconds, and all the good work that we'd done seemed to disappear and he went back to a very original state, which wasn't what we wanted. So we learned a lot. But if we understood a lot more, I mean, thank God Pete's book arrived in that second week because we didn't lose a lot of time. We probably lost the first seven days of not understanding. But as soon as we got his book, I, I can I can actually show you, but you know, it won't show on the podcast. But for me, everything was written in, scribbled in. I don't know whether you can see that, but it became my actual Bible. And that's the wrong word to use, came my blueprint for recovery. And we absolutely, oh, just everything was on Pete's information. So we got hope. And the Stronger after stroke definitely was our full and utter mantra Daily. And I would show John, obviously, the the front cover says stronger after stroke. And as a, as a, um, you know, a person who was trying to deal with words, it was very important for me to try to convey at least something that 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 was his forward thinking, you know, that he could think that he was going to be stronger after stroke, if only he could grasp that as an understanding. And I think he did. You know, I think those were the very first only three words that he really got hold of. And thank God he did. Yeah,
0: it's very unnerving when a person can't communicate and you can't communicate back with them. But it does help us find different ways to communicate with them. And it, really shows us that communication is more than our language.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. We've done a wonderful program not so long ago and we, we worked on gestures, sounds, pointing, air writing, you know, obviously watching eyes and face and seeing bodies moving in different ways. Uh, Obviously Google, when they get to a stage where they've got capability to do something but we, we learned how to communicate in, as you say, so many different ways. It wasn't just speech. And we were watching, I was watching John all the time, observing, you know, all these difficulties. I actually had to teach him how to look at the body in a, a more anatomical way. And I brought in sketches of the digestive system, sketches of the nervous system, sketches of the urinary system, so that we could ultimately then help him to recognize signals from the vagus nerve, telling him about, you know, obviously incontinence, which was obviously an issue for anybody in hospital. And you've got to relearn all those signals again for you to even understand what they mean and to be prepared to have the opportunity to go to a toilet. Therefore, you then ultimately don't need incontinence pads and things like that. But the problem that we had was the fact that His mobility to begin with, his right side, his first couple of days, his right arm was completely flaccid, didn't have any movement. And then as the physios worked with his left side, his right arm, which was in a sling, suddenly started to lift up and they whipped the sling off and started to, you know, let him do things with his right arm. And thank goodness he got that back and it stayed back so to speak, you know, it never, ever became useless again. So it was absolutely fantastic. And then his right leg was not, he wasn't confident with it. So the physios insisted that he have two people to assist whenever he moved out of bed or wherever it was. So when he pressed a nurse button, one nurse would come, see the instruction of two people needed, go away be caught up in some other uh, medical issue somewhere not return come back some other nurse would come see two to assist go away and you know so to get get to the shower or to get to the toilet or to get to it was a, a very lengthy process because of this two to assist so that was my first goal was to understand let's get down to one to assist at least and and start working on that so there was there was an enormous amount of lack of knowledge, but because luckily, because I'm such an observant advocate for him, I learned a lot very quickly and could give him those means of communication somehow. You know, it was all learned through Pete's book. It was all learned through everything that we just picked up on the way. No one told us or supported us or helped us understand what was the right way to go or what could be helpful we were never we were never I was never communicated with I was always the person asking the questions and trying to get answers and it was hard
0: I am so sorry that it was that that type of experience for you
1: I don't think it's uncommon
0: I don't either and i f- it It just seems like it's such a drawback of Western medicine and this concept, the way that the model, it's the model. yeah, and and it doesn't.,
1: I think there is some wonderful research happening now, which is actually uh, valuing uh, the need for that. Certainly in Brisbane. There is some wonderful research coming through, but research takes a long time. And Peter's book, I've given it out to all the people that we've been associated with in those hospitals, in wherever I've been. I've actually given a copy of his book to, hopefully, someone who is a boss cocky. That means a a boss, (laughs) sorry, it's an Australian expression, Um, you know, who might at least pick it up and possibly read it and possibly realize the value to their department of what it could mean to people such as us in a sense but also me also significant others in families where they have no idea where to turn for information we were given a booklet a folder with a, with some books and things in at the time and some of those really were very helpful, but they they weren't the same personal touch that you need as a, a human being to have reassurance and be given hope and be given some kind of direction. I don't know. There's just a big difference. And when you're traumatized with so many things that you have to think about, you actually don't. Realize that maybe they have given you some good information because no one stopped to tell you in that folder are some really good bits and pieces that I think you would find very helpful. It was just a case of the folder was given and no, not really any introduction to that. Very simple omissions, but incredibly important for people who are under huge duress trying to deal with the immediate. Once again, like the clinical staff, they're dealing with the immediate and they don't stop. Another immediate comes in on a bed next door and another immediate just being admitted. Whatever it is, there's a lot of shortcuts that have to be taken because of shortage of staff or, you know, all those kind of things. And I'm sitting on the sidelines trying to put the pieces together and they don't necessarily come easily.
0: Yeah that is the reality of many aspects of the world today. I know it's very similar here in the U.S. And, you know, I was just talking on another interview that we did recently about what it's like during that acute phase. You know, it's emergent. It's everything that you just described. And then there is the getting home space. Yeah. And I think when you get home, you just want to be home. You need a moment to be in your home space and kind of regroup. But then all of a sudden when you're home, there's another realization that there's still more. This is not finished. Recovery is this ongoing thing and I think that as healthcare providers, we could do a much better job of checking in and providing some more of that meaningful information as time goes on, when things are a little bit more settled.
1: Mm, Definitely. And I think Pete's book, once again, uh, the the importance of his book was actually detailing uh, the, the understanding of how much brain injury affects energy use in the body. That was an absolute revelation for me. A normal body uses, the brain uses 20% of the body's energy. That was huge. But with someone who, and we just assume, we don't even think of our brain as as an active uh, process. We, we we think of muscles and we think of all those things using energy, but we never think of the brain, well, I think most people, never think of the brain using up so much energy. That was a Startling revelation for me. And then I realized that a brain injury person, everything is no longer automatic. Every single movement, thought, everything they do has to be a thinking process, a a relearning process. And the use of energy in doing that is like 50, 80, 100, 150% of what they did before. And the fatigue that can come. Is, is real. But because, they, because people don't understand that energy explanation that Peter did so well in the book, they, have, they just think, oh, you know, they're dealing with someone who's had a stroke and they think, oh, well, he's only done, you know, he's only done a few things. So you know, <laughs> how can he be tired and then not respect the need for sleep? Then it's a case of uh, I absolutely got how important horizontal therapy was. He calls it horizontal therapy and sleep. And, and we insisted, uh, whenever in the hospital, I insisted that between therapies, as soon as John had finished one, he'd jump up, well, I won't say jump onto the bed because he couldn't, he had to wait for two to assist. And sometimes that whole period had gone where he could have been lying in bed, having a sleep before the next session. And he was still sitting in a chair because he was waiting for someone to come and move him. And so, you know, those things are, and people don't, I don't think even the nursing training talks about energy use. And I think that's seriously important for people. Yes, they they do sleep a lot. They sleep a lot because they need to sleep a lot because they're using so much energy to do even the minutest thing. So that's always been Hugely important. Even now, uh, John has a sleep in the afternoon. We gauge roughly what he's done during the day and we whip him into bed and he has a good snooze for an hour and a half, you know, something like that in the afternoon. And then he sleeps really well from probably nine until six or nine until 5.30, you know. So he's using a lot of sleep. And I think that's part of the reason why he's why he's so um full of energy because we're respecting that. He's always been a high energy individual, we both are. We're both very driven and we both, you know, do a lot. And that's probably why, you know, we've we've survived so well and and we still very energetic at 74 and 80. We know we've got a purpose through this whole event. We know that we're going to be advocates for inspiration or guidance or whatever it is. We've got a purpose in this whole process. And, uh, you know, certainly Pete's book, I'm spreading it (laughs) far and wide, wherever I can, you know, it's in little libraries here, there, and everywhere. Now, whether people pick it up or not, that's not my responsibility. I was the messenger. I gave it, you know, um, I know what it can do.
0: That is very true. And I already know that you are a wonderful advocate. I can already tell. Thank I you. wanted to highlight just three titles that are in uh, this chapter in Pete's book. The it's chapter one: Stroke Recovery Essentials. Yeah, and it says living life after stroke takes a lot of energy. Mm. It does. Recovery takes a lot of energy, mm. and neuroplasticity takes a lot of energy. Yeah. So all of the recovery process. Needs energy. And I do think that part of the way that we live life on the go all the time has made it so that we don't quite understand the importance of rest. Yeah. Especially when the body is healing. Yeah. And then I'm sure that he's still healing and in the recovery process, even in the more chronic phase of stroke like you were saying, everything takes more effort, more energy, more time. So respecting the need for rest, I think is exactly what you were saying, helping him do better and have higher levels of energy in between the rest.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I think um, that then uh, in life generally, I think, people have forgotten how important real sleep is. They're, they all have devices now. They watch and listen and go right through the night. Sometimes these kids and people, you know, they never even give their body any rest. I'm, I'm going off track here at the moment. But, you know, it's I think all of us have got to be reminded how important sleep, real sleep is. And, um, you know, I think there'd be less mental health issues if there was real sleep recognized and respected. And I think that would be very important as a little side of what we're talking about here. But the other thing that I really got to understand was the killing flaw. In his book, he talks about the killing flaw. And that was to do with how important it was not to fall. And you hear all the time of elderly people, they fall, they break their hip, they go into hospital, they get pneumonia, and, and they've gone. They fall, they bang their head, they get some kind of hemorrhage or they get some kind of brain injury and they then cascade events. I have been absolutely adamant about supervision of him while he is not capable of being fully aware because apart from the aphasia and apraxia mix that he's got, he also has inattention and neglect. And, and he doesn't understand that he doesn't have that capability sometimes because he hasn't remembered he's got an arm there or whatever it is just momentarily now because he's got so much mobility back but the sensory aspect the neglect and inattention is still there so in fact he requires supervision not not that you'd be there all the time looking but you just have to be aware of things that could, He thinks he can still do things really easily. And then he gets halfway through them and suddenly realizes, oh, my goodness, where am I? What's happening? What do I do here? I don't understand. And therefore, that can then create a cascade of events that could lead to a fall or something like that. So his chapter on the killing floor, he calls it, and I think it needs to be called that because that's what it needs to be really seriously addressed in people that are slightly at risk. Now, the only two falls he ever had were actually in the hospitals. One was within the first week of him in his first stroke in the gym with two physios attending. The other one was in the other hospital where he was supposed to be attended to and supervised. And because he's using his left hand all the time, sat on a toilet and reached across from left to right, to get the paper, and then fell off and fell onto, luckily, his elbow, but that could have been his head. So, you know, these are two aspects that I think, how could it possibly happen in hospital? You know, and I don't mean to say that in the wrong sense, it's just it could happen any time. But for me, the killing floor was just, so so up there as a priority. It was incredibly important. And, um, you know, uh, we just learned such a lot. And he spoke with such clarity about everything in simple terms. So it wouldn't matter whether you were, uh, you know, someone who couldn't understand language very well, you could just get the gist of things. If you were a clinician, you could understand the entire thing. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you read this book? Because it's going to make you a better physician, clinician, whatever it is. You know, it's like it's a book for every man. I agree. Everywhere I go, I recommend it. I t- carry it with me. And I pull it out of my bag and say, Have you read this? And I get them to use their mobile and photocop, you know, photograph the front and back. And hopefully they might read some of the information and one day order it. That's all I can do is that, because it will have a ripple effect. You know, ultimately it will do its job. It's already doing its job. Don't don't get me wrong, but I think that we could spread it far and wide even more and more. And we're everywhere I go. I'm I'm involved with now the new rehabilitation centre in Brisbane here, which is opening from the point of view of aphasia research, Queensland oh. aphasia research Center. And it's opening on the 21st of April. It's already been open for a year. We did a program in there last year. And that was to do with speech and intensive high dose speech therapy. And um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bruce uh, Willis, is it Bruce Willis? The oh actor yes. Who's, who's just been diagnosed with aphasia all of a sudden aphasia now has got a high priority and exposure and our department here has been flooded with media talking to them about aphasia now we're we're doing videos on aphasia and we're going it's going to be out there you know from that point of view and I will be taking this with me everywhere and anywhere I go I'm I'm just a cross pollinator you know I'm someone who's unfettered by um uh, uh what would you call it um unfettered by medical bureaucracy or laws or regulations i can actually flee free flow through all these departments and environments and just keep on planting seeds that's how i see my position and john and i both of us as a team we could work together showing us showing people what's happened, this is an 80 year old, you know, there's no, there's no excuse, so to speak, for age, it's just all mental. You know, it's all how you want to live your life and how much quality of life and how hard you're prepared to work. You know, it's there's a lot to do with independent responsibility, trying to get yourself into a place where you can help others or be an inspiration to others or whatever it is that you do, we've definitely got a purpose. And we're out there opening doors wherever we possibly can.
0: That's wonderful. I love it. I wanted to go back to Pete's book. And I agree with you that healthcare providers should be using his book. And it is his book and another book, the um, Jill Bolte-Taylor book, My Stroke of Insight. Insight, Unbelievable. I found her book first and I still wish I could remember how I came upon Pete's book. I have no idea mm. how that happened, but those two books literally changed my occupational therapy practice I'm because sure I, is. I, I always thought that I was empathetic, but after I read Jill Bolt Taylor's book, I realized How important it is to hear the perspective of the person who has gone through something like that. And when she talked about the people that would rush in the room and not give her an opportunity to respond and the length of time that it took her to process what was being said to her and pull up the information, that really transformed my practice and yeah. I started to realize how important it is to, to be with the person where they are and not have an idea of how much should be accomplished in a session, but yeah. rather let a session unfold mm-hmm. and effective communication and connection with that person is yeah. one of the first things that needs to happen. Yeah. And then when I found Pete's book, I finally started to understand penumbra better. And we yeah. talked about this on one of our podcast episodes. I was always confused about the penumbra. And I know it's because there is a retrieval device called the penumbra retrieval. And I just, I don't know. It was just always mixed up in my mind. But once I got a hold of his book, then I started to understand, oh, it's a part or in the brain around the the infarct. Yeah. And, um, I, I had books that I could give to people. I had something tangible to recommend to family members. And, you know, you, as a healthcare provider, I'm the kind of person I feel at a loss if I don't have something to offer you that can help you and your loved one farther down the road.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know.
0: So that was
1: yeah. well we can only be the messenger and that's and that's what I had to learn as well is you can't fix people all you can nope. do is you can you can be the messenger you can bring the message and then it's up to them whether they consider the message as important enough to them to want to do the work that's associated with it i used to agonize trying to get people to do things i don't anymore you know, and I had I actually had to come to that that determination in my in my relationship with John too. I felt fully responsible for him. And it was agony thinking about that. I had to determine that it was okay to not be responsible for him. That was his condition. I couldn't change that. All I could do was help him learn new things, give him direction, give him guidance. If he chose not to do it, it wasn't my responsibility. I felt terrible about that because obviously his condition affects my life as well as his life. So the less he does, the more more need for my living his life, rather than necessarily living our life or living my life. I've basically given my life to his life at the moment but I want to actually encourage him in the right way by sharing information that's easily um, now, easily understood by John. But in the beginning stages, I had to carry all that until he got to a point where he was able to have comprehension, uh, where where he was able to, you know, have healed enough to get that. But coming back to Jill Bolte-Taylor just for a moment, John's stroke was on the um, left left, uh, left side, and it was an ischemic stroke. But she talks about the itty-bitty shitty committee of the left brain. And his itty-bitty shitty committee was is now on pause, and I am very, very grateful for that. Because as people get older, that habit of those things becomes quite, Dominant now, what we have is his right brain is absolutely blossoming. I have the best smiles I've ever had in a 50 year relationship. I have he's his happy and doesn't need to do everything in a task orientated driven manner. He's very accepting of things that change. He always was of things that change, but not accepting in a loving way. And this right brain, her interpretation of left and right brain, for me, was an absolute revelation. And she's now written another new book about four characters in the brain and how we can actually change that dominance by different thinking and become more humanitarian or compassionate or empathetic. Because the driving force of today's world is so fast, the itty-bitty shitty committee, or the peanut gallery, she calls it as well, you know, tiny, tiny bit that's incredibly controlling, thankfully, is on pause. And I say to Johnny, I I don't want that itty bitty shitty committee. Thanks. You know, let's stay with this right brain because this right brain is blossoming, enjoying, accepting, growing, being allowed to grow. And I love that side of you. You know, that's who I want to live with in the future. You know, it's not the other one necessarily. The other one can creep in a bit, but it's not going to take over like it has done in the past. So I'm very grateful it was a left brain uh, stroke because I would never have understood actually what John's character could have been, you know, um, with the right brain being allowed to do its wonderful, blossoming, humanitarian thing with great consideration and great love and care and you know all those lovely things have happened in this last year and I think there's there's amazing gifts in challenges and that certainly for me is probably the biggest one
0: it's really amazing how you can find something so wonderful in the midst of quite a catastrophic event
1: well you know as soon as he had the stroke, he was on the bed and he gave me two of the biggest smiles I have ever seen in our relationship of 54 years. And they went right to his soul. You know, the windows are the eyes of the soul, so to speak. Well, I got there. He gave me that. Wow. And I think, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful thing I've experienced. I've never seen that before. And it's
0: still there. I think it really speaks to you as the type of person that you are, that you're able to see that because through the trauma of the events that unfolded, that could have gotten a hold of that part of the brain of yours too. And it could have started to take more control, but it sounds like you have such a, a balanced way of looking at life and engaging with life that you're not letting that happen.
1: No. Well, you know, a lot of people have said to me, you know, more power to you girl, because you stuck with what you believed in, which was only because of Peter's information he could give me that made complete sense. And I was so convicted by wanting and John was too, in in how he could talk to me at his recovery. we were so convicted about the fact that he would be stronger after stroke, all I needed to do was believe it passionately, which is what I've done from day one when I got the book you know stronger after stroke the mantra you know was was it for me. I know we're probably we're, we're running into time frames and things, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this whole process because it needs to be spread far and wide that there is strength you know it is it is able to be stronger after stroke it is possible to be stronger after stroke you just got to adopt that
0: mm-hmm. it is and i i do have a couple of more questions if you're okay with time i don't know where you're at
1: I've probably only got about another 5 or 10
0: okay i think that it's really important what you were saying about how you can't do something for someone else. And like, there's a line where helping goes, right? And I think it's really important for care partners to know that there is that line and to take care of themselves. Yeah, true. Because I have, in the intensive care unit, I have worked with many, many care partners who end up very ill. Because they haven't taken care of themselves through a process of another person that they're helping.
1: Absolutely.
0: So I really appreciate that. Yes.
1: I'm mindful of that. Once again, as I said, we both have very high energy, but I am mindful of that. And um, you know, I have other people that I can talk with and discuss that. And they're very mindful of me. And they keep sending me texts. Are you taking time? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And probably, no, I'm not at the moment as much as I possibly could. But there are times when I think, oh, this has been 13 months full on 24-7, really, because even though he's asleep, there's this gasping, you know, aspect to lying in the wrong position, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, even that. But anyway, I'm fine with that. So carry on with your next question. And But it's very important because other people don't have the same um. Acceptance or the same balance in their mindset. I've done thirty-five years worth of personal development on me. I've never stopped. So you know, uh, I have worked hard at at maintaining uh, a humanitarian compassion as much as possible in my life.
0: I can tell it shows. Thank you. I just want if you want to share how John is doing, getting around, and in terms of helping himself with some basic self-care items. I'm sure our listeners are curious.
1: Yeah, now he, he, he is fully mobile. he's fully independent he's fully independent with supervision and I say that only from the point of view of the aspect of neglect and attention. Those are the two things that and the apraxia, which is to do with sequencing and things like that. Uh, we've, we're focusing on language this year as our prime thing. And um, he's doing extremely well with that. We've also been doing the Arasmith program, which is Barbara Arasmith Young, the woman who changed her brain. And she's an old neuroplastic believer since the 1970s and built an entire system for herself at the age of 26. Something changed in her life, which when you read the book, you'll get that. And it's a program of clocks. And it's on a Zoom, and we do it every day, five days a week for 40-minute engagement. And John got his numbers back over a period of uh, probably three months. He did uh, 1 to 12 because the clock was an hour hand. Then he did 1 to 60 because of the minute hand. Um, then he could say 60, 70, 80, 100. Uh, couldn't necessarily get them all in sequence all the time because of the apraxia after but he can now tell the time beautifully with two-handed clock. But he does that every day. So that's um, um, a brain stimulation, a challenge. Every day is a challenge for the 40 minutes in particular and something that deals with the entire brain. You don't know what it's doing, but his reasoning has become so sharp now. And all sorts of, of wonderful things happen, little tiny things that we recognize are huge steps. So that's what he's doing in that direction. We've done a constraint-induced therapy. We've done a CHATS-intensive speech program. Um, he's constantly, we're constantly involved with research with uh, the Queensland University and with STARS, which is Surgical Treatment and Rehab Center here in Brisbane. And we're getting more and more involved with the aphasia associations around the globe. You know, we're just trying to do a lot more on the aphasia side of things because before Bruce Willis, it was a very undernourished area of research or funding or whatever. So that's becoming more as a prime interest around the globe because now there's a high profile person who's unfortunately experiencing aphasia. But for the rest of us, it's a great possibility of promotion in a new way which is what's happened here. So John's mobility is excellent. His speeches, he had um, an occasion where he had a bit of a turn in February this year. I got him back upstairs onto the bed, so to speak, and realised that he was having some kind of something. And so I rang triple O. They came. All his vitals were fine. But as soon as they mentioned him needing to go to hospital to check it all out because of his previous history, His right arm started to tremor. His right leg started to go funny. And this is the anxiety aspect where the spasticity returns. Anyway, took him to hospital. He had a seizure on the way in and then opened the back doors and his eyes were open and they did scans. Everything was fine. No further stroke. But it took him a whole 12 hours to um, get to get the tremors under control. Then he was in there for 10 minutes, 10 days, sorry, 10 days in hospital. He came in the first day he was in there. His speech was so fluid. You couldn't believe it. Wow. (laughs) He improved out of sight and we all couldn't, you know, it was just the fluidity of it. it wasn't necessarily the expression and recall of things out of context, but things that he understood, he could talk quite freely in sentences. And, um, you know, that was really exciting. But what we, we determined ultimately, they thought it might be FND, uh, functional neurological disorder, which really is something about, I really don't know what it is, but let's try and investigate it further. And um, now I've, I've probably put, put my label on it thinking it's anxiety. It's anxiety that's not... Um, nips in the bud by reassurance and then the anxiety gets worse and worse and and then it becomes out of control and then the whole body goes chaotic, especially with the lack of communication with the brain in a normal person and it wasn't anything to do with epilepsy or anything like that. Seemingly, they found that out. And so we're working now on giving him tools to, if this comes again, well, then we just nip it in the bud early. We reassure we say it's okay, we try and give him tools to tap or do whatever is necessary. And uh, we'll be working on that as well, because anxiety has many, many guises.
0: It sure does.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, Bridget, thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you for sharing your story and John's story with Hmm. us and all of the wonderful plugs you give for Pete's book. I know that he would appreciate that. And I'm sure his family does as well.
1: Yes, it's fabulous. Anyway, maybe we can have one a bit further down the track and involve John as well. Yeah, that that would would be great. Fun Because we've got like the beginning of a podcast and then we can have, yes, what's happened?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Great to meet you, Deb. And thank you very much the opportunity for all of us to talk about the wonderful work that Pete did Thank you
0: Bye for now Bye Thank you so much for listening to this episode We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com That's noggins the word and spelled out neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.